Hey guys, welcome to the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast, episode 21. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, here with co-host Robert Nelson. And today we're going to be talking to Bradley Williams of Real Trees United Country Hunting Properties. There we go. Uh, about buying your first hunting property or, or buying a hunting property. Uh, for those of you out there, maybe uh, that are like myself, who hope to still one day own a piece of hunting ground. Uh, we're going to dive into the, all kinds of information regarding that as far as um, how to find the property, how to finance the property, um, what to look for and what to avoid, all that kind of stuff. should be able to answer about any question you might have on the process. So um, if that sounds like something you're interested in, certainly stick around. Uh, before we get started, I do, as always, I want to mention the Onyx discount for those of you who may be interested in trying out Onyx Maps. Uh, one of my favorite apps and probably spend more time on that than any other app on my phone, <laughs> especially this time of year. Uh, but Onyx was gracious enough to give us a discount code for you guys. So uh, if you want to get 20% off, you can use the promo code GAAFIELD. So it's G-A-A-F-I-E-L-D at onyxmaps.com and, and they'll knock 20% off of that for you. Uh, anything else we need to cover, Robert, before we jump into the interview here with Bradley? I uh, just want to give a huge thank you to everybody that's bought a decal or pre-ordered a shirt. Um, we really want to thank y'all for that and the support. And if you're interested and you haven't yet, but you want to get one, uh, we'll have the links in our show notes, or you can go through our social media or website to find those. But huge thank you to everybody who's bought one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, let's uh, jump on the phone here with Bradley and uh, see what he's got to say. All right, guys, we got Bradley Williams on the phone here. Uh, Bradley, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Oh, not a problem. Um, glad to have you on. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this interview because uh, I, I have a personal interest in, you know, hopefully owning some land at some <laughs> point, uh, e even if it's a, a small acreage, which it probably have to be. But yeah, this is always something that's interested me. So uh, you know, this gives me a chance to kind of pick your brain and, and hopefully the listeners uh, can learn from from that. So, um, yeah, glad to have you on uh, here. I'm glad to be here. And uh, hopefully you find something in there to pick uh, when you're picking my brain. But, <laughs> um, no, I'm just carrying on. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've, I've been listening to your podcast and, uh, um, you know, you guys have presented some good information to me, too. So. Well, thank you. Um, glad to be on. Yeah, we appreciate that. Well, why don't you kick things off by just, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe your your hunting background. Sure. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, I currently live in uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. I'm a uh, agent with Realtree United Country uh, Hunting Properties, uh, brokered with Talking Rock Realty out of Talking Rock, Georgia. Um you know, from Knoxville, Tennessee, originally, uh, you know, and, and moved here to Georgia, I guess, seven years ago. Um, you know, my big passion is uh, deer hunting and land management. Um, you know, so I think uh, I think that kind of is part of what stored me or uh, steered me toward uh, wanting to get into land sales. But I'll, I'll go into that uh, in a little bit more depth here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm a uh, I'm a Georgia transplant as well. So I, I wasn't too far I wasn't too far ahead of you there. I think uh, this year will be uh, nine. Yeah, nine years this November. So yeah, it's uh, it's been good though. I enjoy it down here. That, that kind of makes me the full time outlier, huh? That's right, <laughs> Georgia native. <laughs> so uh, Bradley, what, what what got you into the yeah. career of selling land? Uh, well. Um couple different things. I guess I should uh, backtrack a little bit and, and talk a little bit more more about what got me into uh, hunting in general and then kind of how that led me uh, into the land sales thing. So uh, I guess uh, I pretty much have the typical boy from the Southeast story uh, about getting into deer hunting. Uh, my grandfather and his family introduced it to me from a young age. You know, by the time I was seven or eight, I was out there with a a Ruger 1022 chasing squirrels and, you know, moved on up in the rabbit hunting. And then as I got older, you know, uh, sitting on the stand deer hunting and, uh, that really just developed a, a passion in me for the, the outdoors and, and wildlife. 
how I got into selling land is, is actually a pretty long story, but <laughs> I try to try to shorten it as much as I can. So basically I, uh, I'm a fireman and, um, with that comes a, a lot of free time. You know, our schedule is 24 hours on 48 hours off. So that equates to only working nine days a month, uh, works out to about, two shifts a week, sometimes three, depending on how it falls on the calendar. And, you know, I started noticing a lot of guys in the fire department had a, a, a career on the side that they did to, to generate more income. You know, guys had uh, landscaping businesses and, you know, gravel hauling businesses and just, just all kinds of, of interesting little careers that they were to, you know, they were able to manage on the side and kind of realized maybe I should be doing something to generate some more income. And a guy that was also on the fire department uh, was involved in real estate. And uh, he kind of steered me towards going to get my real estate license. So I did, uh, went through the class, went and took the test, passed, got my license and started off mostly in uh, residential real estate. But I knew that that really wasn't where my passion was, you know, growing up deer hunting and always having a passion for the land and the outdoors. Uh, I knew that just residential was not where I was meant to be. So, uh, over the past, I'd say probably four years, you know, some, some events, I think that God put in place in my life really steered me in toward, uh, becoming a land agent. And, you know, I'll share a few of those things with you kind of step by step. So I guess about, well, I'll start further back. I guess growing up hunting, you know, back when I was growing up, if somebody had a couple food plots on their lease, you know, wow, they were they were really doing some high quality management. You know, <laughs> uh, quality deer management wasn't quite mainstream like it is today. Uh, you know, so I wouldn't say growing up that I that I was really taught from a young age the the best way to manage property how I got into that and which then kind of led me into land sales was I'd say that's probably been about six years ago. Now I had the opportunity to go hunt in South Georgia through a friend's connection, uh, on a, uh, large professionally managed plantation. Um, they professionally manage for bobwhite quail and whitetail deer. And they've also, got some ag land and pecan orchards and, and just looking at all that and how well they manage that place down there just really kind of ignited a passion in me for, wow, you know, like this is something that can be done. You know, people can, can take land and manage it and uh, maximize it to uh, offer the best hunting experience. And, and uh, ever since I saw how that was done, I just, I just got the fever. I mean, I, Huh. I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to that kind of thing. I started reading every book I could get my hands on about land management, watching every video I could. You know, I, I signed up and took a prescribed burn manager class. I uh, took the uh, QDMA uh, Deer Steward 1 class and was actually signed up to take the level two uh, this August, but thanks uh, to COVID, that got uh, canceled. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, little disappointed about that, but, you know, and I also started thinking about our, you know, family property in, in Alabama. My grandparents have 113 acres in uh, East central Alabama and, and it hadn't been managed in two generations. And, and I really started thinking, okay, how can I put some of this stuff that I'm studying into practice? And that kind of led me to uh, about three years ago, I started the process of, of researching how to transform this property, which led me to getting with the uh, Alabama State Forestry Commission uh, to help develop a property management plan for the timber. I met with an extension agent from Auburn University who's a wildlife biologist to put together a management plan for the wildlife. I met with timber harvesters, research programs from the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service on some cost-sharing programs and things like that that landowners can implement to uh, help them out. And through all that, I, I learned a ton about, you know, implementing management plans, coming up with different ways to to not only improve 
the land and make it more valuable, but also provide better wildlife habitat and also more timber production. And through the process of interviewing timber harvesters, I met a now friend of mine and and mentor. Uh, He owns a timber company. And uh, he also manages a 1,300-acre hunting club uh, that borders our family property. And he was kind enough to not only help us with the timber harvest, but he also uh, invited me to become a a part of the hunting club and and help implement some of the management in his hunting club. And and he, on his own, really did a good job managing, you know, high-quality habitat and really putting all the pieces together. But when me and him, we put our heads together and, and we really talk and, you know, try to come up with the best management plans. And, and he really has the resources to put those things into practice. So I think God has kind of put a, a series of events in place at the right time in my life to kind of give me some good background knowledge, firsthand experience in land and working with different agencies that also led into me being able to put all those pieces together help other people when they buy and sell property. So that's kind of a, a long-winded explanation of how I kind of got into to selling land. Yeah, it's funny how that works out. Yep, I've uh, <laughs> kind of had some of those same experiences uh, in my life that, like I said, led me from Kentucky down here to Georgia and, and doing what I'm doing today. It's funny, yeah, how the, the, the pieces can just fall into place like that. Now, did you did you move to Georgia uh, to do the the real estate thing, or was you already in Georgia, and then the real estate thing happened no, after the fact? Um, so actually, I funny story, and kind of you know like we were talking about how you know God kind of changes our plans. I actually moved to Georgia to, to get the fireman gig. You know, I moved to Atlanta and realized there was nothing in Atlanta that I enjoyed, so I moved <laughs> out of Atlanta in a hurry. <laughs> that um, sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> I, yep. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm definitely not a city guy. I, I like being, you know, where I can barely see my neighbor's house, if you know what I mean. But yeah. But anyway, no, like I, like I said, uh, I, I got married and, and realized with the fireman thing, I needed a side, you know, I wouldn't really call it a side gig. You know, people say, well, are you part time in real estate? And I say, well, I mean, with my fire department schedule, I still work, you know, four to five, eight hour days a week, just doing real estate. And then when I'm on shift, you know, we've got a lot of downtime once our daily chores and training are over. So, you know, during that time, I'm always catching up on paperwork, writing contracts, you know, doing market research. So, I mean, people can call me part-time if they want, but you know, to me, I I think, you know, four to, you know, that amount of time that I put into it, I don't really consider myself a part-time agent, but. Right. Um, But, but anyway, you know, like I said, I started off in residential real estate and realized that really wasn't for me. And some of those pieces of that puzzle that we talked about were kind of coming together. And I realized that, you know, I can take some of this, you know, really help people with buying and selling hunting property and timber property. And so I started looking for different brokerages, trying to pick one that was really more land centered than where I was before. And came across uh, United Country, and uh, they're one of the oldest land brokerages in America. They were founded in 1925, uh, been selling land ever since. And they recently partnered uh, partnered up with uh, Realtree to form Realtree United Country Hunting Properties. And I had an opportunity to get on with them and hit the ground running. Well, good deal. Well, let's jump into... um... Let's jump into a little nuts and bolts here, I guess, about buying land in Georgia. First off, kind of, yeah, sure. I, I I know, I guess this is uh, this is going to be pretty broad, but I know I know it varies. But kind of, what's the what's the going price of of hunting land here in Georgia? So, like you said, that's a that's a very broad question, <laughs> and a lot of that is going to depend on. <laughs> I, I wish I could just tell you an exact number, but. Right. No, I know you can't do that. On what, yeah. What area you're in, you know, here, here in North Georgia where I'm at, I mean, I'm seeing land go from 6,000 to 9,000 plus dollars an acre. If you look down around, you know, middle Georgia on into South Georgia, you can get some better deals. You know, we're, we're looking in the 1500 on the cheap side 
all the way up to about $6,000 an acre where I'd say, you know, the, the main properties that you're going to find, you know, middle and South Georgia, you're probably between two and $6,000 an acre. And a lot of that's just going to depend on the, the, the features of the property location, um, that kind of thing. So that's just kind of the main factors there is, you know, where it's located. And I, I'm assuming what it's, you know, most guys that are buying hunt property um, are going to be looking for a, an ag zoned or rural zone type property. But, you know, there's also many guys may not know, but there's a lot of big deer in the city of Atlanta. Um, so, you know, those could be city zone. Absolutely. So does that does the zoning play a big factor in that pricing as well? It does. And uh, to kind of expand on that, so how appraisers and agents look at how a property is going to be priced, a lot of that is determined on what what it what its highest and best use is. Meaning that, for example, in a transitioning area such as Versailles County, you know, some of those metro suburbs, you know, on in the, some of the North Georgia mountain areas, like up here where I'm at, uh, a property might currently be zoned ag and might be, you know, used as a farm or uh, timber investment or what have you. But the highest and best use of that property may actually be for commercial because of its location or for residential development. Or especially up here in the, the mountain counties, you know, you might have a property with some beautiful views that could really be used to put in some vacation cabins and that might maximize the profit from that property. So that drives, you know, that's a driving factor when you're, when you're looking at price, a lot of times it's not necessarily what the property is currently zoned or what it's being used for, but uh, how could somebody maximize profit from that property? All right. So Bradley, I kind of want to jump back a little bit here and uh, talk about something you just touched on, which was timber. And uh, just, is there any opportunities out there still for people to buy a piece of property and, you know, be able to make a return investment from cutting timber to pay for a big chunk of that property? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You actually want to uh, look at my YouTube channel. I've got a video that explains a little bit about that. It shows an example of uh, how somebody would have bought a timber property back in 1990 in the southeast and uh, held it up to you know current day you know 2020, what type of rate of return they could expect from that from the timber. Um, but long answer short, in that hypothetical uh, example that I give in that video using you know adjusting for inflation, uh, using data from from then and now. Basically, in that example, the the timber revenue came about six thousand dollars short of paying for the entire purchase price of the property. So, yeah, I mean, timber timber is an investment that that on a regular basis outpaces the stock market. You know, it, it is a long term investment. You know, it's not something that you're going to get rich off of quick. You know, if you go in and, and harvest timber, you're looking at twelve to fifteen years for your first commercial thin. And then typical, you know, uh, planted pine rotation is usually on a uh, 30 to 40 year final harvest. So you're definitely looking at a long term investment. But, yes, the opportunity is there for the, the timber to to pay down a large portion of that purchase price. In, in that example you just mentioned, is that planted pines or is that hardwoods or a mix of both or what, what kind of what was uh, the scenario? Yeah, yeah the. So the scenario there in that example is, is basically starting with a property that had been clear cut. You know, the the example, the, the hypothetical situation there was somebody went in, clear cut it, decided after the clear cut it, the clear cut, they wanted to sell. So that was factoring in uh, site preparation, preparation costs, replanting costs. And the example I used was, was Loblolly Pine. But uh, as far as timber investment goes, you know, hard, you, you mentioned hardwood. Hardwood is absolutely going to bring a higher price, but it's also a longer rotation. So if you can right. get into a property that has some some good, you know, mature hardwood, you're definitely looking at some good return. But with that, you know, when you, you just got to make sure and, and a crucial part of the land management process is getting with a good forester and managing those cuts because especially in and a hardwood cut and I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself here but you got to be careful to to not do what's called high grading 
a lot of timber harvesters will want to go in there and, and cut the uh, trees out of there because they bring the most profit for, for you and them. But when you go in there and you remove the best stems, you know, that leaves the lower quality trees that are left to remain on the site. And that's what will eventually reseed your site, thus degrading your long-term timber value. So um, anytime you do any kind of timber cut, it's it's critical to get a professional forester involved. So uh, Bradley, so most of our listeners, I'm assuming, you know, when they go to buy a piece of property, they're not looking to clear cut it right off the bat. You know, they're maybe looking to thin some timber, do it in sections, you know, something along those lines for a long term investment and being able to, you know, hunt that property. Obviously, you can hunt it with a clear cut, but most guys aren't going to be looking to do that. Uh, from what I'm assuming. And then, so, you know, what kind of acreage is needed to make the money back? And then it's kind of a two-party question. Um, what kind of acreage and then what percentage of that land needs to be in timber compared to say ag or fields, or um, I guess you could qualify it. Some of it as wasteland, but you know, you can always improve it habitat wise, but what would the acreage be and the percentage of timber needed to be? Sure. You know, as far as a hard, rule of thumb there's there's i really can't give you one and and the reason for that is is because different sites are going to have different site quality you know the soils the topography a lot of that is going to determine the the end product of timber that you're going to get from that site you know hardwood hardwood versus pine prices are going to be different and and so what's on a particular site is really going to determine how much value that you're going to get back out of that. So I'll give you two examples here, you know, of some income that, that you can expect. We had a listing uh, here in Georgia that we were preparing for a couple months ago, and it, it was only a 34-acre property, but it had some gorgeous mature hardwood timber, some of the, the best that I've seen. Like I said, it was only 34 acres, but our, our timber crews came back that there was over $50,000 worth of, of timber on that property. So with with good hardwood timber, I mean, you can make some good money. But another example on our uh, property in Alabama, we just did a, about a 40-acre clear cut. You know, it, it was a pretty hilly site, pretty low site quality. Uh, the stems that were growing on it were, were hardwood stems, but... They were pretty poor quality, crooked, you know, not really fit for saw timber. So they mostly fell into the chip and saw and, and pulpwood class. There was some pine, you know, mixed pine in there too, but same thing, uh, pretty poor quality timber. So out of that 40 acre clear cut, we got about $22,000 out of that. So, you know, as far as a hard rule that I could tell you, you know, it's going to vary on site quality and, and what kind of timber is already in place. But if, but if it were me, if I was looking for a property to pay for itself in timber, I, I'd be looking at at least 100 acres. And I'm, and even at 100 acres, I'd be looking at a site with the, the best site quality uh, possible. And that's, a, that's another thing that having a good agent can help you. You really need to, to get access to the soil data on a site to, to be able to determine which site has the potential for for the best timber income uh, as well as ag you know if you if you plan on doing any ag leases you know you need to make sure that that property is is fit for the use that that you want to put it in to make some of that income back out of that property all right we've we talked about um some factors that influence price as far as zoning um timber value uh, what else? What else is out there? What other factors do we need to kind of keep in mind that would influence the price of a, a hunting property? All right. So there, there's a ton of factors. Um, like we talked about before, the the highest and best use of what that property could bring is probably the biggest factor. But then you have other factors such as topography. You know, is it straight up and down or is it flat? You know, we talked about timber value. You know, timber value is a is a big one the soil quality that's on that site. You know, like we just talked about, the, the better the soil, uh, the better your potential for ag and the better your potential for, for timber investment as well. So whether that site is, is suitable for, you know, row crop or pasture, you know, easements, easements are a big one. And that, and that kind of goes hand in hand with access. You know, if, if access to the property is limited through, you know, one 
easement that another property owner has given you, you know, that can really limit some value because there again, it, it limits some of the usability of the property. What utilities are available? You know, if you can get, you know, power and, uh, and county water, you know, that's a pretty big deal. You know, is the property suitable for a well? Is it suitable for a septic tank? So you can put a, a cabin on it or a house. You know, those improvements, you know, is there a house on it? Is there uh, a barn that can be used for, you know, ag purposes? Is there uh, a hunting cabin? You know, water features. Is the property, you know, on a lake that offers, you know, some secondary recreation? Uh, up here in North Georgia, is it on a designated trout stream? Um, you know, all those things, you know, there's a ton of factors that come together that, that help influence price points. Yeah. What about actual hunting improvements? Just things like food plots and shooting houses and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Does that have a significant impact on the potential price of a property? Yeah, it absolutely does. You know, a, a property that has been well managed and well set up to support hunting, whether, you know, whether that's a hunting club or, or just a smaller property just for, you know, an individual or family to hunt on. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, I, uh, what I would say is if the property just has, you know, let's take a hundred acre property, you know, any, anything you do such as, such as putting in food plots and that kind of thing is, is going to improve, you know, the market attractiveness of that property. Am I going to say that you're going to get, you know, $20,000 more for, for putting in two food plots? Probably not, but it's going to definitely drive up the, the marketability of that property and attract more buyers. But the big thing I think is overall habitat improvement. If you're able to take the time, put in the work to improve the overall habitat, you know, timber sand improvement, food plots, you know, making sure you've got good early successional habitat, you know, good bedding cover, you know, you've got year round food sources on the property to, to really hold and attract those deer. Uh, you've got good places to kill them from, you know, when all those factors come together, you can really start seeing, see a good increase in property value. Uh, enough. So, I mean, is there potential there? And I've heard, you know, I heard people talk about doing this, but I didn't know how viable it actually is to to maybe buy a small property, um, improve it for hunting, and then turn around and, and flip that property to buy a larger property. Is that uh, is that something that happens? Is that realistic? Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, I think there's some there's some some things that need to be considered. When you're when you're looking at doing something like that, though, I I think you know as far as buying a property that's big enough to to make that kind of improvement and and that kind of flip on, so to speak, you you've got to have enough initial capital to buy that property. You know, it really helps if you can buy it outright. You know, and it's a long it's a long process. You know, so from the time that you purchase that property to the time that you sell it. I mean, we're, you know, make those improvements, turn around and sell it. We might be talking about a year or two. Uh, you know, you've got to get your man- management plan in order. Uh, you've got to get timber crews in there to actually um, go in and thin the timber and, and do the improvements that you want on the property. You've got to amend your food plots. You've got to get your shooting houses in place. You know, if, if you need to make improvements to the road systems, you've got to get that done. And, and all that takes time all the while you're, you're paying a mortgage payment. So if you've got the capital to go in and, and buy it outright, it, it can, it can certainly help you. Uh, you can, you can certainly mortgage it, but a problem you'll run into is a lot of mortgage companies. When you go cut timber off a of property, they consider that you know, as a, as a loss in value on the property. And so they want to maintain their loan to value ratio. So if you buy a property that's mortgaged and you immediately cut $20,000 worth of timber off of it, they're going to want to still meet that, that loan to value ratio. So they may need you to apply that $20,000 to the principal of that loan to, to keep your, your ratio in check. 
And so what that means is you might not have as much income from the timber as uh, you might like to make some of those improvements. Now, the, the harvesting of the timber itself can go a long way. You know, the, the log index, you can turn into food plots. Uh, the actual thinnings are going to allow for your early successional habitat, you know, sunlight on the ground. That, that's a big thing. So it's not that it that it can't be done through a mortgage property, but you just got to keep in mind that you might not have all of that uh, revenue from that timber harvest to apply toward improvement. So let's say, uh, you know, it's it's not realistic for everybody. You know, all our listeners may be to go out and buy 100 acres, 200 acres, 300 acres. Let's say for a guy like myself, uh, you know, I'm a younger guy just getting started in my career, just got married, you know, and say I can go out and I can buy five or 10 acres and I can buy it outright. Say I have the money to do it and I go out and buy it outright. Is that a viable option, you know, for acreage size to be able to take that property of five or 10 acres and flip it in a couple years and then be able to buy something more? Or is that too small of a property? You know, what's it look like there on the size scale of what you really need to be able to make that investment and make that flip? I think you, I think you absolutely can, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. So I think if you're in a market where I call a transitional area, you know, an area that is kind of in the process of converting from more ag use to more residential, you know, I think, your more viable option there would be to go in buy a buy a small parcel. You know, let's say let's say you've got an area that that's next to some neighborhoods that are going in, or you know, a new development is coming in. If you can pick up a parcel in that general area, go in make some improvements, such as getting a, a house spot graded out on it, or getting you know a utility box out there. You know, basically getting that property ready for, you know, residential development might be your better bet on those smaller properties than necessarily making the improvement to turn it into a hunting property. And then as you make those small, small properties and flip those, then you can move on up into uh, getting into those tracks that are a little bit bigger, you know, give you a little bit more options. You know, one, one drawback to the small properties is a lot of timber companies are are not going to be attracted to anything that's smaller than 15 or 20 acres. Uh, so if you're relying on, you know, timber sand improvement to help or, you know, a clear cut to help uh, implement some of your, your wildlife management strategies, um, you're really going to be limited to a property that's, that's 15 acres or, or greater. So, yeah, you can absolutely take that avenue of approach, but you might want to start with a different type of flipping and then work your way into flipping hunting properties, if that makes sense. No, yeah, that makes sense. That was, you kind of touched on it there at the end, and uh, that was just going to get some clarification there on, you know, flipping it for a hunting property. But I think the listeners can pick up there what you're talking about. Maybe Maybe start with something else if that's all you can afford. And then, you know, buy those bigger chunks and start flipping those for actual hunting reasons, you know, going in timber stand improvements, food plots, habitat management, feed trees, et cetera. But let's let's. Kind yeah. Of, we, and uh, I can touch. a. I was going to touch a little ahead. bit more on that if, if you want me to. So talking about those areas that are, you know, what I call transitional areas, there there are a lot of people that have, have had success with that especially, you know, people that have held timber holdings, you know, for a few years, they've, they've started to come into these places, you know, especially around here where I live, where people are wanting to build vacation cabins and mountain getaways. They'll go in on these, you know, 20, 30 acre tracks. You know, a lot of them were, were planted pine and they'll just go in and, and do a thinning, you know, to a pretty low basal area, you know, around 40 or 50. And, um, where the site still looks pretty, you know, and people want to live there and they turn around and subdivide it up and sell it off for, for building lots. And, uh, they're selling like hotcakes. So especially in these transitioning areas, there, there's definitely a market for buying those smaller properties going in and, and making improvements and, and flipping them. And then that will lead you, you know, more into, you know, the larger, the larger hunting tracks. 
No, definitely, definitely understand you there. So we've touched a good bit here, you know, on the current state of the hunt land in Georgia, the prices and some things we can do to improve it. But let's let's go into kind of finding land, the, the I guess, kind of the main meat of, you know, what our listeners may be interested in on how to be able to find that property and, you know, what to look for, et cetera, um, along, you know, something along those lines there. You know, what are some benefits of going out and using an agent such as yourself, Versus say, you know, I drive, I drive down the country road. I live in Southwest Georgia and I just drive down the road and I'm like, oh, there's a for sale sign. And then, you know, I go through the process like that. What's the, what's the major differences there? Okay. So one thing that you want to consider, you know, when buying property is that I kind of, I kind of make an analogy with, with a real estate transaction. That's kind of like solving a puzzle. Your real estate agent kind of helps I kind of helps tell you where you need to put those pieces of the puzzle. You know, there's a there's a ton, especially in land, that goes into this. And having a an agent that's knowledgeable and, and has a background in, in land management and has connections and knows how to connect you to the right people to meet your objectives is huge. For example, getting an agent that has good contacts with lenders. Um, and has a good rapport with them can make a transaction go much smoother when, you know, I can call a lender that I've used before and have a good rapport with, you know, I, if, if there's a, an issue, I feel comfortable calling them at seven o'clock at night and being like, Hey man, we need to get this issue solved before this deadline. That's a, a huge thing that, that an agent can help you with. Having an agent that's familiar, um, and has contact, uh, different aspects of, of wildlife management. You know, if, if, if your agent has kind of been through some of those processes on his own, you know, he should be able to know that I can put you in contact with, with professional wildlife consultants. He, he can help you develop your property management plan. I can put you in contact with this forester. He can help you develop your timber management plan. And then that forester can put you in contact with a good timber harvester and just, you know, on down the line, having a, a good agent that's been through these processes can can set you up for success and help you avoid some issues further down the line in your in your transaction. I think another thing I need to add to the, the agent thing is having a good agent that knows how to access or help a landowner. You know, when I talk about the the pieces to the puzzle, a good agent will be familiar with a lot of those resources, like with the Natural Resource Conservation Service that'll help the landowner. You know, for example, if an agent's familiar with some cost share programs like the Longleaf Pine Initiative or the White Oak Initiative, a landowner needs to generate some revenue through timber harvest. And he knows that going into buying this property, a good agent can be like, hey, maybe consider getting in one of these uh, cost share initiatives to, to save on your replant cost, which puts more money back into the property or back into your pocket. So having an agent that's familiar with some of those programs will will be super beneficial as well as some of the the tax break programs you know I, i'm i'm not a tax expert by any means but there's a lot of programs out there that's available to landowners uh, such as the conservation use valuation assessment that can really help really help save landowners some money you know and being familiar with with some of those programs and having an agent that can help guide you to some of those solutions will, will be a big help you know, and also having an agent that's that's familiar with deer hunting and hunting property. You know, you don't know how many times I've called an agent from one of these big name, big city uh, real estate brokerages, and you know, we're we're talking about a property, and then I ask, you know, so has the owner said anything about you know deer hunting or wildlife on the property? And they go, Yeah, you know, uh, the owner said him and his brother, you know, both tagged out and. You know, they both shot a four-pointer and a six-pointer last year, and you're just like, <laughs> uh, well, I guess they're not, they're not shooting mature bucks over there, you know? So, um, <laughs> you know, not that there's anything wrong with killing a small buck if that's what makes you happy, but, you know, so, you know, you can just tell by some of those answers that some of the agents really don't have a clue. I think if you walk in the, you know, one of those agents' offices and, you know, say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking for 200 acres and I need it to be in a county with season long doe days. And, you know, I really want to implement a good uh, QDM program and, you know, I, I need to have uh, some good timber investment on there. So I want some good mix of planted pine and hardwood timber and I need it to be at least chip and saw quality or greater. 
Then I'd also like to have some, you know, mid-rotation planted pine. So in a few years, I got some more revenue coming back in. Most of those uh, big city agents are going to look at you like you got an eyeball growing out of your forehead. (laughs) You know, talking to an agent that kind of understands some of those things will will be a huge asset to you in your transaction and, and in your property search. Well, that, that brings up a good point. Then. What's the best way to vet an agent then to, to make sure you're getting one that, you know, can knows what you're talking about and knows what you're dealing with when it comes to hunting property? Yeah, so I, I think a really good place to start is looking at the, the brokerage itself. Go to a brokerage that specializes in this. Like, for example, my brokerage. You know, you know if, if you're going to a brokerage that's been in, land sales since 1925, they've probably got some systems and some networks in place to, to help support their agents uh, in dealing in, in land contracts. Uh, you know, and especially with their partnership with Realtree, uh, you know, they, they give us some good training and Realtree gives us some good resources and some good systems to help uh, locate properties and, and also help market properties, especially listings. But yeah, the, the brokerage is a great place to start. You know, pick Pick a brokerage that uh, specializes in the kind of property that you're looking for. And then when you get down to the individual agent level, you know, call them and and have a conversation. Uh, Ask them, you know, what their background is. You know, do they have any interest in hunting, any experience with hunting property, any experience with property management? They have any, are they familiar with planting food plot? And and just establish a good rapport with them. You know, just just having a good conversation will will tell you a lot. You know, somebody that you get along with, somebody that, you know, kind of speaks the same language will be very beneficial uh, when you start getting into the the nitty gritty of the transaction. You know, real estate transactions can, can be emotional sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of money on the line. There's hopes and dreams and, you know, not just experience, but just having a good rapport with your agent can can go a, a long way as well. So let's say, you know, we, we know we want to buy a piece of property, but say I come to you and I'm speaking with you on the phone and I'm like, hey, I want to buy a piece of hunting property. You know, that's a really vague statement. And you may be like, OK, um, well, and then so is it a good thing for, you know, the potential buyers to have a list? No, I think I think uh, I think that's actually the, the best place to start right there, because that will help me kind of ask some questions that that will lead me to getting to know you better and know what you're looking for in a in a hunting property and uh, kind of know what your what your situation is. So, you know, if, if you come to me and you say, hey, I'm looking for some hunting property, you know, my next question isn't going to be like, well, you know, what kind, you know, no, I, you know, I'm going to take time to, to say, you know, like, okay, well, you know, let's sit down and talk about this. What, what do you hunt? You know, what, what kind of hunting property are you looking for? Because, you know, that's going to determine a, a lot of the areas that we target our search in. You know, if you tell me where I'm a, well, I'm a big time quail hunter. Okay. Well, I know Southwest Georgia has got some of the best quail hunting, you know, in the country. So that might kind of steer me towards that area. If you say, I'm a deer hunter, but I also want to hog hunt. Okay. Well, North Georgia mountains, you know, probably isn't where we want to look. You know, we probably want to focus our search in somewhere that's got a good hog population and and good deer population. So if you say, you know, I'm a deer hunter, but man, I'd, I'd really like to chase black bear too. Okay, well, you know, let's let's come on up in the mountains and, and find us a good property. You know, so you know, the one question kind of kind of leads to another and kind of tells me uh, what type of property management that you're going to be wanting to find and and what areas of the state that that you want to focus in. Yeah, so I think I mean what seems to well obviously hinder a lot of people from from being able to buy that hunting property is. Uh, you know, obviously the finances and, and a big part of that is from my understanding is the, of course, the down payment requirements um, when buying raw land. So what can you talk a little bit about that as far as the, the down payment requirements and just some financing options for somebody that wants to buy their their first piece of hunting property? Yeah, absolutely. So typically hunting property is going to be a little bit different than residential in the fact that they do require a little bit larger down payment. So most lenders that do raw land, you know, such as Ag Georgia, they're they're going to want 20% down, you know, if you go with conventional financing. So there are some things that that's that can kind of help you with that, you know, if you don't have you know, let's say you're looking at a $200,000 piece of property, you know, that, that's a 
$400,000 down payment, or excuse me, $40,000, not $400,000. But, you know, not a lot of people have that kind of cash. But if you have a, uh, let's say you own another lot somewhere uh, that you own free and clear or, or your personal home, if you own your per- personal home free and clear, a lot of uh, lenders will allow you to put that up as collateral uh, in lieu of a cash down payment. So there are there are some workarounds to that. You know, another thing you can consider is owner financing. Typically, they're going to want a shorter term. Where with a traditional lender uh, on land, you can you can usually get a twenty year term. With owner financing, they're they're probably going to want within a five to ten year term to have that property paid off. But but there are some some ways that you can start into a property with owner financing, build up a down payment, and then later get a conventional mortgage when you've got that down payment, you know, further down the line and, and still get into the property. So there are some other options out there if you don't have that that large cash down payment. I even was talking to a guy from Ag Georgia the other day and he even said if farm equipment, you know, if you've got a thirty, forty thousand dollar combine that's paid for free and clear, you know, you can throw that in on your collateral. So there there are some there are some options out there. You mentioned owning your home free and clear. What if you just have, you know, say you have equity in it, you don't necessarily you don't have it paid off, but if you have some equity in your home, can that be used um, as a down payment as well? Yeah, sometimes it can. Um, you can certainly look into uh, taking out a home equity line of credit to go towards your down payment. Sometimes lenders can be uh, a little bit leery of using borrowed funds as a down payment. You know, not all the time. You know, a lot of times they can make it work, but yeah, that that's absolutely a viable option. Seen that happen a couple times actually, where, where people took out some some money, you know, some lines of credit, and and rolled that into a down payment. Now you mentioned owner financing. What are some, I guess, things to look out for? Uh, maybe some red flags or something to, you know, when it comes to owner financing a, a piece of hunting land because it that it, that seems a little, uh, I don't know, a little scary to me. I guess where uh, you know you could be easily taken advantage of. So what, what are some things you'd want to look out for? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to owner financing, I would just want to, I'd really want to make sure to, to get a good contract. Um, you know, actually go to your real estate agent and, uh, and, and have them write up a contract just as you were buying that property, you know, with a conventional mortgage, you know, have, have similar terms in there. Obviously your, uh, your financing is going to be in shorter terms and your, your payments are going to be a little bit different. But as far as just the, the stipulations of the actual transfer of the property, you know, those terms can be very similar to, you know, a conventional transaction uh, and owner financing. You're, you're still getting, you know, you're, you're still getting title of that property in a similar way that, that you would if you were to, to do a conventional transaction. It's just the, the owner is being the bank. Uh, if right. that makes sense, instead of, you know, you, you go into the bank and, and giving them, you know, the cash to buy it. But I would just make sure that your, that your terms are, you know, spelled out, make sure that the, the biggest thing, honestly, is just to make sure that you can meet those, those requirements. You know, if they say that we're going to need X amount of dollars down and X amount of month to, to owner finance this to you, just, just make sure you can meet that obligation, you know, cause if, if your contract is solid and that's something that your real estate agent can help you with, you know, through, through the contract. And if you're, um, you know, you're able to make those payments, you, you, you shouldn't have too much say, cause you know, when you, um, when you do your, your owner financing, you can still go through a, a closing attorney similar to a, a, a conventional transaction and, and all that, you know, all the terms and everything can still be reviewed um, by a real estate attorney. So, so that's what I, honestly, that's what I would recommend. Number one, to make sure you avoid the pitfalls, you know, in an owner financing transaction is to make sure that, that you're, you're working with a, a good real estate attorney as well as an agent. Do most do most people finish out that owner uh, owner financing, or or most of the time is that just a way to you know to to pay in and build up some equity in it, and then uh, get traditional financing from there? Uh, most of the most of the time, it's a way to get in without the uh, higher down payment requirement. 
like that you would have in a, in a traditional mortgage. So, so more often than not, it, it's going to be something to where that, that person owner finances it for a short amount of time and then goes out and actually gets, you know, conventional financing. Gotcha. Okay. We, we talked about, you mentioned, uh, of course, timber sale, any other, I guess, uh, creative ways to help pay for a piece of property as far as, I don't know, easements or any other uh, options out there to kind of help with the, with that help with the financing part of it or the pay, you know, the paying the property down. Yeah, absolutely. So outside of timber, uh, if you're somewhere that, uh, you know, got some good ag land, you can do, uh, an agricultural lease, you know, and that'll also help you, you know, with your food plot implementation, you know, if, if you can get somebody to plant a bunch of soybeans out there and, and you're getting money from, that lease could also potentially reap some benefits from that also for your, for your deer herd. You know, you can, if, if you've got some areas that maybe you're not quite good enough soil for row crop, but, um, you know, will still support grazing for cattle and, uh, you don't want to, you're more concerned with getting income back out of the property to help pay for it long-term than you are for using those particular areas for, habitat management, you can always lease it for cattle. You know, and as, as far as easements go, there are some programs out there, uh, such as, you know, CRP that will provide some cost share. But I know in Georgia, this, the requirements for CRP is, is that area has to have been used for commercial ag. There's so many years out of the past few years that that, that property had to be used for commercial ag that you've then converted into um, wildlife habitat. So you can also get some some cost share through that as well. You know, and like I mentioned before, uh, when it comes to, to timber, you can keep a little bit of money from that timber harvest in your pocket by doing some of the programs such as the Longleaf Pine Initiative if you're in an area that uh, qualifies. You know, that can cover a, a large amount of your uh, site prep and replant cost, which which keeps more money back in your pocket. So one place that I'm always going to tell a landowner that I'm or a potential landowner that I'm working with to go before they buy a property is is to place a phone call to the National Resource uh, Conservation Service and and see what type of cost share programs they can qualify for on that property and and that might give them a, a good idea of um, you know what kind of incentive they can get from them and. And then also we'll, uh, we'll definitely look into what kind of, you know, ag lease the property may currently have, uh, or if it's a suitable property to, uh, use for row crop through the soil data and that kind of thing to, to see if that might be a, a potential for, for some more income as well. All right, Bradley, uh, aside from, you know, the, obviously it's the initial, the cost of the, the property is going to be important an important consideration. Uh, and, the, and of course, the down payment. But what are some other things, some other considerations that uh, we need to have in mind when, uh, you know, when considering a, a specific piece of property? Yeah. So um, there's a few costs, you know, much, much like there are in the, the residential world. When you buy a piece of property, there's going to be some closing costs and, and some additional due diligence costs that are involved. And these are, you know, some of these things are really important and don't need to be skipped. So, um, if you're going through a conventional lender, they're typically going to charge you a fee, an origination fee to, to write that loan. I know with, with Ag Georgia, they, they typically charge a 1% of the loan amount. So, you know, if you got a $100,000 loan, you can, you know, count on paying a $1,000 origination fee. Another thing is if you're going with a conventional lender, you're going to have to pay for an appraisal. And depending on the, the property size and some different factors, those those costs can vary. But, you know, typically I, I'd, I'd plan on paying anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000 for an appraisal on a, on a large property, such as one that you'd be buying for hunting or timber investment. Another thing to consider is survey costs. And that's another really important part of the due diligence process in buying a hunting property. I always recommend that a, a buyer get a survey. For one, you need to know how much property you're buying, especially in a situation where the previous landowner might not have had a survey of that property done in the past 
two generations. You know, over time, as property boundaries around that property change, mistakes can get made, numbers can get skewed, boundaries change over time. So, you know, I've seen examples of where, you know, somebody thought they were buying, you know, 120 acres, got a survey and it and it came back that the property was actually 130. And so, you know, that changes things a little bit. You know, if, if we're writing this contract on a cost per acre basis and the survey found 10 acres that we didn't previously thought exist, the sellers could potentially want additional payment for that for that extra property. Or hopefully if, if you did your survey as a buyer and that's your property, you know, and it's not specified in the contract, maybe you can get more property than you thought you were getting. Uh, but typically in land contracts, there's a, a there's a survey contingency in there that requires if the land is surveyed and it, it's not as advertised that we kind of have to go back to the negotiating table. But, you know, the caveat to that would be a situation where, you know, my real estate agent answer, quote unquote, is always, always, always get a survey. The only time I might deviate from that would be if uh, the previous landowner had a survey that was done less than five years ago, they supply you with that plat. You can walk the property and find every single pen yourself, you know, and, and you're pretty confident that, that you know where that boundary is. You, you might consider saving a little bit of money, but, but I would always uh, recommend having an appraisal done. And on a, uh, you know, a residential or excuse me, a recreational uh, hunting size track, I mean, a survey can cost anywhere from ten to twenty thousand dollars. So it's it's not a it's not a small not a small cost, but it's definitely an important one. So those are those are some things that that buyers need to be aware of when when purchasing property. And all, all those fees now is all that stuff out of pocket up front or up front out of pocket expenses. So yes and no. So a lot of that can be negotiated into the into the sale. So a lot of times we can negotiate with the seller to say, hey, you know, we want to buy your property, but in order for this contract to go through, you've got to pay for a survey, you know, and, and we can negotiate that within the contract. You know, same thing with the appraisal costs, but typically in, in Georgia, the way transactions work is the... Uh, seller of the property typically pays the commission for the real estate agent of the person they hire and the buyer's agent. So, you know, they're paying typically some, some pretty big fees for the the services of those two agents to help manage that contract and transaction. So it's typically up to the buyer to pay for the, uh, you know, what I call the closing and due diligence costs. Um, But some of those things can and, and do get negotiated. Yeah, for sure. Well, Bradley, we've had you a little over an hour now. And uh, man, just thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. You know, we covered a lot of topics from what to look for, you know, as far as what to look for in land, what to look for in a realtor, financing options, things we can do to make some money back on that property in the future. Um, We really can't thank you enough. Brian, do you have anything else, you know, you got for Bradley? Uh, the only thing I have is is Bradley for anybody listening that wants to uh, either get a hold of you or find out more about you. Uh, I know you mentioned you had a YouTube page. Um, where's the best place for them to to reach you? Yeah, so anybody can feel free to call me on my personal cell phone. Uh, my number is eight six five seven six six nine two eight zero. Uh, or you can find me on YouTube. Just uh, type in Bradley Williams, uh, Realtree United Country, and, and you should be able to find it. Uh, I've got a Facebook page as well. Or you can go on Realtree United Country's uh, website and, and look under the agent section, and, and I'll be there. Good deal. And we'll we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes as well so people can uh, can find that stuff easily enough. And I guess with that, like I said, we appreciate you being on here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bradley. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Bradley. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed that and got as much out of it as I did. Uh, I know a lot of you out there, I'm sure, like myself and and hope to someday own some hunting land. And uh, hopefully that 
information there will, will help you guys out. So uh, with that, we're going to we're going to wrap this thing up. I'm going to spare you the chit chat this week. Uh, Robert and I will as uh, we're getting ready to do a full episode here pretty soon of just talking back and forth on our season plans and some different stuff like that. Uh, so you'll get to hear plenty of us on that. And we'll just go ahead and uh, conclude this one. But before we do, uh, Robert, anything left we need to tell them? Yeah, just want to give a huge thank you to all everybody that's gone out and left us a rate and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. It really helps us out and helps us grow. Um, if you haven't yet and you're a listener and you enjoy what we're putting out, please subscribe. Leave us a rate and a review and uh, share with a friend that you may have that's in the hunt but may not heard of heard of us. And uh, they may really enjoy the podcast. So, But that's all I got for this week, Brian. All right, guys. Well, as always, hunt safe, shoot straight, and most importantly, hey, just enjoy your time in God's great outdoors. We'll see you guys next week.